exhibition in the crowd at home. One, two, three, four, five, and nine. I'm making that crowd and make it on time. I say, hey.
and welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the Rolling Stones and Hey Crawdaddy, live from April 1965 in Paris. The book that we'll be focusing on today, Raving Upon Thames, an untold story of 60s London. And I've got the writer of that wonderful tome, Andrew Humphreys here. A huge welcome, Andrew. Lovely. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So the idea behind Raving Upon Thames, from reading it, it seems to cover a gap in London and musical history of the the late 50s and 1960s. Is it the Richmond area? It's a bit broader, isn't it, than that? It's focused on Richmond, but Richmond sort of shading into Twickenham as well, and maybe a little bit of Kingston. And for listeners who don't know where that is, Richmond and Twickenham, southwest London, on the Thames, right on the edge where, you know, the tarmac and concrete makes a transition into trees and fields and river. Not quite a suburb, but it's got its own separate identity on the edge of London. And we kicked off with the Stones, and I know that Hey Craw Daddy was one of the tracks that they played at the very earliest period of their career, but This particular area was pivotal. I can't overstate that enough in terms of their early gigs and the music scene that led them to become who they uh, eventually became. Yeah, I mean, what baffled me when I came to write the book, I I didn't understand why this story hadn't been told before, because the basic premise of the book is that in the early 1960s, this area, Richmond and Twickenham, was as vital to music and the whole 60s cultural revolution as Soho or Chelsea or Liverpool. And the place that you mentioned, the Crawdaddy Club, it was to the Rolling Stones what the cavern was to the Beatles. And yet everybody knows about the cavern. Um, You know, it's a national landmark. There's so much being written about it. Nobody knows about the Crawdaddy and the role it played in the story of the Stones. And also, it's not just the Crawdaddy. This idea of how pivotal Richmond and Twickenham were to the 60s, it rests on sort of several scenes. There was the Crawdaddy, there were festivals, there was Eel Pie Island, and we'll come on, I'm sure, to talk about these later. But I suppose I should start by explaining why it's so important to the Stones. The time we're talking about is early 1963. So as most people probably know, the Stones formed in 62 at the Marquis, But six months later, January 63, they're only just settling on the lineup. Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts have only just joined in January and they're struggling to get gigs. They were playing at the Marquee and the Flamingo and they've lost both of those gigs. The Flamingo doesn't think they're authentic enough, so it's basically sacked them. And at the Marquee, they've got the wrong side of the notoriously bad-tempered Cyril Davis and he's given them the elbow as well. So really, they're without any regular gigs. They're scrabbling around, and onto the scene comes this chap, George Elgamelsky, who is a refugee from Soviet Georgia, who arrived in 1955 in London, aged 21, and established himself as a bit of a hustler and fixer. And again, he's one of these characters that's been forgotten. Everybody knows about Lou Goldham, Napier Bell, Epstein, Giorgio discovers the Rolling Stones. He sees them in January 1963 at uh, the Red Line in Sutton, I think it was. He decides he's going to manage them. He's been hanging around Soho. He decides to take them on and he finds them a residency in Richmond. 
Giorgio has fallen out with people in Soho, specifically with Harold Pendleton at the Marquee, and he wants to get as far away from Soho as possible. So he he finds this back room in Richmond um, at a place called the Station Hotel, and he puts the stones on there. First gig is February 63, the very first night, only as few as three people or 30, depending on who you believe, turn up. But week by week, the crowds grow. And within about six weeks, they're queuing down the street for the Stones. And they are the biggest story in London. So big, in fact, that about six weeks into the residency, the Beatles turn up to see them. And the Beatles have been filming down the road at Teddington Studios 14th of April, I think it was, 1963, the Stones are playing. Bill Wyman looks up, sees four shadowy figures coming through the back room of this pub, and it's the Beatles. And so this historic meeting, for the first time, Beatles, Rolling Stones, takes place in the back room of a pub in Richmond. The funny thing is, it also turns out that night, when you later read the biographies and read the interviews, in the audience that night, was Eric Clapton. Also in the audience that night, Chris Strayer, Paul Samuel Smith of the Yardbirds, or what would become the Yardbirds. So, you know, had there been a gas explosion in the back room of that pub that night, there'd be no Beatles, no Stones, no Clapton, no Yardbirds, 1960s cancelled. Gosh. So when was it Andrew Lugoldum came on the scene? And where was it that he first met the Stones? And there was, there was that issue of the band ultimately dropping Gamelski and going with Andrew, wasn't there as well? That's right. Well, word gets out. Gamelski gets them this residency. He's good at hustling. He gets the press to come down. The Stones get their first ever write-ups in the press at the Station Hotel. They appear in the record mirror. And this is where Andrew Logue Holden gets wind of them. He gets a tip-off from the editor of the mirror Before the interview runs, he should go down to Richmond and check out this band, which he does. So he goes down, sees the Stones, and it is love at first sight. He said he he doesn't know anything about R&B, but he knows about sex, and this is sex on stage. And he decides that he wants to manage this band. So a week later, he goes back. Lucky for him, Giorgio Gamelski, who believes he is the manager of the band, but he never got them to sign any paper. You know, he's done all the hard work, he's hustled for them, but it's a gentleman's agreement and the Stones are not gentlemen. So Giorgio Gamelski, as it happens, is back in Switzerland. It's his father's funeral. Lou Golden turns up Sunday night by Wednesday. He's got Brian Jones and Mick Jagger's signature on a contract. That's it. Gamelski comes back a week later. He's the man who lost the Rolling Stones. And famously, when Giorgio came to managing the Yardbirds a little later, he didn't want to make that mistake again. But before we get into that, for the Yardbirds, that area again, their formation, first rehearsals, was crucial, wasn't it? Yeah, well, we had the Stones playing at the Crawdaddy and they they stuck around till September. So they did about six months. They did Oh, something like 20-odd gigs at the Crawdaddy in Richmond. Now, this is where Lou Golden discovered them. Um, They were there when they recorded the first single, first TV slot, first festival, 
But at the end of six months, they were just too big. They moved on. Giorgio was still running the Crawdaddy. And of course, now he has this problem. How do you replace the Rolling Stones, the hottest band in Britain? So he sent his assistant scouting around the clubs in London. And at Studio 50, Studio 51, Ken Collier's Club anyway, um, which is uh, just close to Leicester Square, he saw this band, which was the Yardbirds. He thought they were fantastic. As it happens, the Yardbirds were actually local to Richmond. They actually rehearsed in a pub across the road from the station hotel. So Gamelski went to see them and decided on the spot they were his replacements. Lead singer Keith Ralph was a Richmond boy and the rest of the band were local as well. And so the Rolling Stones finished playing one Sunday. The Yardbirds went straight in the very next Sunday to fill the empty shoes left by the Rolling Stones. Let's cover the Yardbirds by uh, next playing Good Morning Little School Girl, which was one of their early singles and was one of the songs that they played when they debuted at the Crawdaddy. Yeah. 
touched on it briefly when we were covering the Yardbirds and the Stones to a certain extent. Tell us a, a little bit about Eel Pie. Yeah, so Eel Pie Island is in the Thames at Twickenham. It is about a mile from the Crawdaddy, so it's close enough for people to shuttle between the two of them. Now, the island, it was sparsely populated back then, sort of 1950s, 60s. It was mainly boat building yards on the island. You could only get across by ferry up until 1958, and then they built a pedestrian footbridge, a narrow bridge. So there was boat building. There were a few shack-like houses there. And there was also this thing called the Eel Pie Island Hotel, which was built 1830. In its heyday, it had done really well. You used to get lots of uh, paddle steamers coming down from London with tourists. But by the aftermath of World War One, the tourists had stopped coming. The hotel was a bit decrepit, virtually no residents, but it had a ballroom, which was in a separate building next door, and that had occasional jazz concerts. So in 1956, you got um, another one of these characters that appears in my book. This is a guy called Arthur Chisnell, who was a bit of a rum old cove. And he set up a jazz club there in 1956. Now, Arthur had no interest in jazz at all. He was tone deaf, knew nothing about music. What Arthur was interested in was social working. And so he set up his jazz club as a way of scooping up lost youth and trying to put them on the straight and narrow. And having bands on was a way of attracting the youth to come to the ballroom. Turned out to be a huge success, so much so he got in trouble with the police who said you have to make it into a members club and regulate the membership and the numbers of people coming. So he formed what he called the Eel Pie Land Jazz Club. And um, he handed out passports as, uh, you know, membership cards. So it was like this little passport to Pimlico scene. And that was enhanced by the fact that it was on a sparsely populated island. So it was almost like what goes on on Eel Pie Island stays on Eel Pie Island. It was well out of sight of parents, teachers, and, you know, any form of adult authority. So much so they could have a lookout at the bridge. So if any police were coming, they could scarp back to the hotel quickly and warn everybody. This sounds paradisical. This was where kids, because it was basically just Arthur running it, and he wasn't too hot on checking people's ages. So, you know, kids of 14, 15, 16 and upward could go and drink and dance to live music, unchaperoned, unsupervised, have a great time. So it started off jazz Sunday nights, and then Arthur noticed that the attendance was going down. Not many people were turning up Sunday nights, he figured out it was because of this band at the Crawdaddy, the Rolling Stones. So what Arthur did, he just booked the Rolling Stones and put them on on a Wednesday and put a different band on Sunday. And so the Rolling Stones also had a residency at Eel Pie Island at the same time as Crawdaddy. So I think I counted it up. If you lived around Richmond and Twickenham in 1963, you could have seen the Rolling Stones something like 56 times within half a mile of your house. So the Rolling Stones were the house band. When they moved on, the same time they quit the Crawdaddy, they were replaced by the Cyril Davis All-Stars, which was Cyril Davis and basically Lord Such's backing band, the Savages backing Cyril Davis. Eel Pie Island became a kind of 
incubator for the British R&B scene. There's a wonderful documentary that was made about Eupai Island in 1967, and it covers even more about the island, and it's got that plummy narration, which I, I love, which is very much of its time. Any Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday evening, winter and summer, they come in ones and twos, then in droves, some from near at hand, for others a pilgrimage of incredible miles, crossing the water to the island paying a toll of fourpence to the keeper of the bridge. Along the track, through the trees. A rubber stamp for a ticket in the anteroom of paradise. Or is it hell? Depends who you are how you look at things. This is Eel Pie Island in the Thames off the coast of Twickenham. It's a jazz club that meets in a hall attached to a pub. Tonight the band is that of Brian Green. Over the 10 years of its life, the club has been the subject of attack by a number of local residents. They complain that eel pie attracts undesirables, is a potent source of hooliganism, that the young are led into moral danger encouraged by the open sale of alcohol. That there is some truth in this, no one doubts. But is it the whole truth? Certain it is that there exists at the club a curious underground movement, a hidden grapevine that becomes available only when it is searched for. So now we've got Steam Packet in the midnight hour, and you mentioned, Andrew, about Cyril Davis and such a pivotal figure, but it was his death in 1964 that ultimately led for a few permutations with Long John Baldry to the Steam Packet forming, and we've next got a radio session version of In the Midnight Hour. And again, for Eel Pie Island, the Steam Packet are one of those iconic groups on the scene. Yeah, because, of course... A member of Cyril Davis's band was Long John Baldry. He was Cyril's singer when Cyril died tragically and very suddenly in early 1964. Baldry stepped up, took over the band, renamed them the Hoochie Coochie Men, and they played regularly at Eel Pie Island. Later on, Hoochie Coochie Men disbanded and Baldry hooked up with Julie Driscoll, Rod Stewart, amongst others, to form Steam Packet, which was actually put together by George Ogomelsky. He lost the Yardbirds eventually, as he lost the Stones. The Steam Packet was one of his next ventures. He pulled them together as a superstar group. They played Eopai Island regularly. Rod Stewart, who was part of Steam Packet, was discovered by Baldry at Twickenham Station. This was Baldry played a tribute gig to Cyril Davis a week or two after his death, as the story goes. And it's a story that Baldry and Rod Stewart have both sort of confirmed. 
Baldry's on his way home after the gig. He's at Twickenham train station waiting for a train to take him back into Waterloo. And uh, he hears somebody playing harmonica on the platform. So he wanders down the platform. It's pretty cold. I think it's January. Under a sort of huddled coat, there's this, there's this guy shivering playing the harmonica. And Baldry goes up, compliments him on his playing and says, how do you fancy playing in my band and Rod Stewart has just been to Eel Pie Island to watch the band so he says yeah I'd, I'd love to join but I'm gonna have to ask my mom so Baldry says would it help if I came and met your mom and so a couple of days later Baldry turns up at Rod Stewart's home with a big bouquet of flowers for Mrs Stewart and persuades her to let her son go on the stage and uh Baldry takes him off on tour and he joins the Hoochie Coochie Men. Andrew before playing the steam packet Let's hear a bit of uh, Brian Auger's interview with me last year when he talks about the first period in the Steam Packet and how Brian thought the Steam Packet would work given the different talents and strengths in the group. And they said, well, how would it work? So I said, well, I, I, the way I would see that is I'd go on and play maybe a Jimmy McGriff or Jimmy Smith Rabble Rouser or one of my own tunes, you know, get everything kind of like percolating. Then Julie would come on and do her Nina Simone things and mm. Aretha Franklin, and she loved all the, you know, the Tamla people. Mm. Then Rod would come on. He would do, like, I think he does, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's like a, a mix of pop and different blues singers. And when Julie comes on, I can sing back up for Julie. When Julie's on and Rod comes in, we can both sing back up for Rod. And then we bring in the big star, <laughs> Long John, and he was capable of, I mean, he, he was definitely the best uh, blues singer at that yeah. time that we produced. And, uh, you know, he did that. And also he could do a pop single. I think he had one going at the time. So I said, and we'd all finish up by, he could do some, he, he could do a gospel tune and we could, close everything out like that with all of us backing up and everybody on stage. How about that? And they thought about it for a a minute and they said, well, there's nothing like that out there. And I said, no, I don't think there is. And they said, well, why don't we give it a shot then? You know, and John was happy about it as well. Mm. So that's how the steam packet entered the road. (laughs) And it was, it just went off like a rocket right away.
David Bowie, it's definitely worth talking about how the Richmond upon Thames scene was influential to him. The Manish Boys were one of then David Jones's early groups because he was certainly around, wasn't he? Oh, he certainly was, yeah. I mean, Eopie Island got reputation, far-travelling reputation, because a lot of these bands that were playing, you know, you've got Hoochie Coochie Man, Georgie Fame, Jimmy Powell, Manfred Mann, you know, they weren't unique to Eopie. They're playing the Marquee, they're playing Klux Clique, they're playing other clubs around London. What made Eopie Island different was this sort of lack of authority or organisation. If you played the Marquee, you went, you did your gig, you left the audience, you know, they paid the money, they went, they left. Eopie Island was like a social club and the bands love going there because the dividing line between the audience and the bands wasn't so clear cut. Rod Stewart was a regular Eopie Island before he ever got up on stage. You know, lots of people just knew him as Rob the Mod and part of the crowd. Bowie was the same as Davy Jones as he was then. He used to travel across London to go to Eopie Island to see the bands there as a member of the audience. And he used to attend well before he actually went there with the Manish Boys, because at that time, Bowie wasn't Major Tom or Ziggy or a glam rocker. He was a mod. He was playing R&B. The Manish Boys were an R&B band. They were playing things like uh, Little Egypt, Louie Louie, these kind of R&B standards. So he was playing the same music as the people he was watching up on stage. Eelpie Island was like a boot camp for musicians. So Bowie, the Manish Boys, supported Long John Baldry once um, when Rod Stewart was playing with him. Um, and one of the members of the Manish Boys, Bowie's band at the time, found it really odd that Rod Stewart wore knickers underneath his trousers. Uh, but Rod said they were just far more comfortable than Y-fronts. So Bowie was just a member of the crowd, like so many others were. Jimmy Page went frequently. Jimmy Page's one appearance, I think, at Eelpie Island, he just got up on stage one night to jam with Jeff Beck and Bill Wyman. All of these musicians used to go down there just to see who was on stage and learn from them, because Eelpie Island also got a lot of the original black blues artists over from America. You would get people like Jesse Fuller and Memphis Slim, Howling Wolf, Champion Jack Dupree. And so these young white guitarists from Surrey would go there to kind of literally sit at the feet of their heroes. When Howling Wolf played, Bill Wyman was in the audience and was invited up to play bass. So there were no boundaries at Eel Pie Island. You know, if you went to see a gig at you know, maybe Ronnie Scott's or the 100 Club, you weren't going to be invited up on stage, but that could happen at Eel Pie Island. You touched upon it a little earlier, especially with Eel Pie and that sense of freedom being on an island. There's quite a few iconic photos of teen girls who came along to watch the groups. The main thing about Eel Pie Island, and I, a lot of the girls in those photographs, I managed to track some of them down and interview them. Um, a lot of them still live locally. And the minute you start talking about Eel Pie Island, they may be 80 years old, but suddenly their eyes brighten and they travel back in time. Because for them, it was something magical. It was a safe space. You know, that's, that's, you know, not a term that they use then, but it was very much somewhere that young girls, young people, but particularly young girls felt safe. So many of them said that they used to go along there on their own. 
they tell me their parents heard stories about Eel Pie Island and, you know, would always tell the children never to go there, which, you know, was the worst thing you could do because, of course, that's exactly what they want to do. And several girls told me that quite often they'd tell their parents that they were going round to do the homework with a friend and they'd go out in a nice skirt and blouse. They'd go down to the end of the street where they've hidden a plastic bag with their jeans and T-shirt, get changed, and then go over to the island. And they never had problems going on their own because so many other people that they knew would be on the island. And it was completely unthreatening. So, yes, you look at those photographs. There's some terrific photographs. Half the audience are young girls. And they've said it always felt incredibly private. You cross the bridge. There was a little bridge to cross. And at the end of the bridge, there was an old woman who took the toll for the bridge of a couple of pennies. And then you made your way across the island between the trees and bushes with lights strung overhead. And then you approached this hotel, paid your fee and went into the hotel. And it was just like one great big social club. And it felt like everybody's private club, the best kept secret, because it never advertised. It was only ever word of mouth. Um, And girls said, you know, they'd hang out there and they'd get hit on by Rod Stewart or somebody else. So it was great fun. Let's play the Manish Boys. I pity the fool. Well, I pity the fool I said I pity the fool You know I pity the fool I said I pity the fool She'll break your heart one day Then she'll laugh as she walks away Yeah, I pity the fool we've got the tridents and tiger in your tank and interestingly jeff beck played with his band on the same bill as the tridents before he joined the tridents because they were in existence before jeff joined this being at eel pie yeah and now i can't remember what that band was called that jeff was in before the tridents i've forgotten the night shift 
the night shift, the night shift. That's right. They supported the Tridents and the Tridents tapped him up. They saw him, they were blown away by him and they asked him to join their band. And actually Jeff had been watching the Tridents and when they said, you fancy joiners, he just said, I thought you'd never ask me. So he was more than happy to join the Tridents. And the Tridents, yeah, they were one of the regular bands at the island. Um, they kind of had a residency there. And this was where Jeff really came into his own because the bass player in the Tridents was a guy called John Lucas, who I interviewed for the book. And John tells me it was he that built Jeff his first pedal boards. You know, so Jeff became well known for all the fantastic sounds he got out of the guitar. Well, John says that was him that built him those pedal boards and the Tridents are really where he came to the fore. Bowie was a big fan of the Tridents and Jeff Beck. And if you remember, Jeff Beck appeared with Bowie at his last Diggy concert at the Hammersmith Odeon. And what's also funny is we've already mentioned Jimmy Page. Well, Eric Clapton was in the Yardbirds Yardbirds played their first ever gigs at Eel Pie Island, although not with Eric at that time. Eric came back. He did play Eel Pie Island with John Mayles Blues Breakers, and he also played Eel Pie with Cream. So you've got Eric Clapton, you've got Jeff Beck, you've got Jimmy Page. All were born within about 20 miles of Eel Pie Island and within 14 months of each other. And for all three of those guitarists, Richmond and Twickenham were a big part of their musical education. There's a great feature on the Tridents on uh, the Strange Brew website by Nick Warburton with a cooperation from uh, members of the Tridents. And uh, the Strange Brew website was one of the few places to sort of officially host Tiger in Your Tank. And uh, in that piece, there's a a message from Paul Lucas about why they chose to host that tracker alongside Nick Warburton's piece. I thought I'd just cover that briefly this is from paul lucas john and i feel tiger in your tank represents the feel of the band and gives a sense of excitement that we felt at the time it was performed and recorded by the bbc at eel pie island in 1964 on the website does john tell the story about his rolling stones tape i don't know if he does actually go on i interviewed him for the book uh, great guy he was telling me that when the stones played at the crawdaddy He and his brother, Paul, took a big reel-to-reel recording set with them. And they asked Brian Jones, do you mind if we record it? And Brian Jones says, you know, knock yourselves out, fine. So they did. They recorded it. And they put this tape away and forgot about it for years. And then I think it was in the 90s, they pulled it out again and realized that this must be the earliest live recording of The Stones so they put it up for auction at Sotheby's or Christie's. I can't remember which one. And it sold for a decent price. I think it was something like £24,000 it sold for, which the brothers split between them. And afterwards, they, they inquired about the buyer. And apparently the buyer was Mick Jagger. <laughs> so that's been buried. Thank you. 
So now we have the birds and run, 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 which got released uh, about 25 years ago, but was recorded in 1966. The birds were from West London, but I don't know how close. Not far. They were in northwest London. The area we're talking about is southwest London. But they knew this area really well. The birds, of course, Ronnie Wood was in the birds. Ronnie's brother, Art Wood, played in the Art Woods, who were regulars at Eel Pie Island. So both the Woods boys. In fact, there's a third brother as well. Was it Ted? Ted All right. was a jazz man. He played Eel Pie Island as part of a jazz band much before Ronnie and Art did. So all three Wood brothers played at Eel Pie Island, you know, separately in their various bands. But um, yeah, Ronnie and the Birds played quite a lot, um, and so did Art and the Artwoods. There were a tight bunch of resident bands. So you've got the Birds, you've got the Artwoods, you've got the Downliners set. They were another regular band, Don Crane, who was a Twickenham boy. So there were resident bands that uh, played all the time. So we're kind of going through the 60s incrementally here. So I've got a harder or heavier music starting to come in, haven't you? That's on Run, Run, Run. It's a Who cover, isn't it? It's a Who cover. It was on the Who's second album. Yeah, so this is a Who cover in which he recycles that riff from my generation, which may, I, I'm not sure how true this is, but I mean, certainly Richmond also had the Richmond Jazz and Blues Festival and the Who featured there in 1965. And they did play an acoustic version of My Generation at that festival gig. I'm not sure if that was a first outing, but it was definitely an early outing. Oddly enough, the Who only ever played Eel Pie Island once. Pete Townsend lived at the foot of the bridge opposite Eel Pie Island. But Arthur Chisnell was a bit worried that if he got the Who to play the island, you'd get hordes of mods riding the scooters over the bridge. And he didn't want that. Like I say, Eel Pie Island was a safe space and he didn't want an invasion of mods. So he he never booked the Who to play. However, the hotel was closed down um, in 1967. License violations. The police finally did visit, discovered underage drinkers, closed it down. It reopened a year later, but it reopened under new management and it was an entirely different affair. It was no longer safe. Hard drugs were being sold there. Heavy music was being played. Now R&B is long gone. The kind of bands playing there in 68, you've got Black Sabbath, you've got Deep Purple, you've got Free, and this is when The Who play. They just play the one gig. In this one gig, they preview material from the unreleased Tommy. Was it this era where gigs were promoted under the banner? This is very much of its time. They were promoted under the banner Colonel Barefoot's Rock Garden. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, the the guy that uh, set it up was another of these kind of charismatic chancers who um, was a big motorsports fan. Um, yeah, he, he opened Colonel Burfoot's Rock Garden. The hotel was completely run down and ramshackle by this point. There were holes in the floor. You don't even want to go near the toilets. I mean, it was a decrepit place and he had no drinks license because the hotel had been closed down because of licensing violations but what he did 
you got free punch with your ticket and he would make this with cooking sherry, incredibly potent stuff. And also part of the hotel, the hotel itself was derelict. It had been squatted by, you know, a sort of hippie commune who were selling drugs. So the whole place had a kind of fairly unsavory feel to it by now, which was matched by the kind of music that you heard. Because even before that, I don't know if it was back in 67 or whatever, there was a bit of of scandal and newspaper exposés on it about eel pie. And this predated when it eventually fully closed. But I, I guess as you get to the late 60s, there was an increasing stigma on the venue. It was an easy target. Every now and again, one of the newspapers would sort of get a bit of a whiff of it because it was this island where, you know, basically the club was run for kids, by kids. Arthur was this quite distant paternal figure. And so, yeah, I mean, it was sort of almost rave culture 40 years before rave culture. There was underage drinking, there was sex in the bushes, they were smoking dope. They were doing what any teenager would do given the chance. But because it was on an island, there were easy headlines. So every now and again, I mean, there was one notorious case where I think it was the Sunday Mail sent down a photographer and they photographed couples necking in the bushes. They photographed girls in sort of torn jeans uh, with, you know, sort of witchy hair and painted fingernails. This is sort of 1963, 64 And, you know, they had clickbait headlines about rum goings on and the island and underage sex and all the rest of it. But Arthur had good relations with the police. And so even when these articles ran, he was able to sort of ride the wave and make sure the club continued. So it was 71 when the hotel burnt down? When it finally went up, yeah, what had happened was... You had Colonel Burfoot's Rock Garden, where the place was in serious disarray. You had the sort of squatters commune in the hotel next door to the ballroom where the music went on. And it started to sort of get a little bit violent. The Hells Angels appeared on the scene. The police were taking more of an interest in what was going on because now there was serious drug violations. So the police were showing up and raiding the place. So after Burley, 18 months running it, Colonel Burfoot pulled the plug and retreated. And the hotel then was just left to the squatting commune. They were without running water, without electricity. They ended up having to cannibalise the hotel and burn the floorboards to stay warm during the winter. Um, And the hotel was a complete wreck. The owner of the hotel eventually repossessed it. He got the police in to chase the squatters out and he started a demolition process. He sold the land to a developer. He started demolishing the hotel and it was actually during the demolition, the workmen were burning the building rubbish and the fire got out of hand and burnt the whole thing down. And this would be early 1970. So, you know, this whole kind of Eel Pie Island, you know, wonderful ravers, hippie dream went up in smoke and kind of that marks really almost the end of the scene, but not quite.
Uh, John Martin, May You Never, from May 1972. And this was live at the Hanging Lamp in Richmond. And the Richmond Folk Club, this is a quite a, an interesting adjunct to what we've been discussing, had been gathering since the early 60s and is kind of a little scene of all of its own. Yeah, this sort of is slightly peripheral to the main scene, which was really about R&B and was 63 to 65, then it went a bit psychedelic and hippie. But running parallel to that, there was a folk scene. I mean, I'm sure lots of your listeners know there was a folk revival in Britain in the early 60s. Every town had a pub with a folk club. There were plenty of folk clubs around Richmond and Twickenham. Paul Simon played one of his very earliest gigs in Richmond um, in the Labour Party headquarters. But in 1968, a club called The Hanging Lamp started up in Richmond. Not very well known, forgotten by most people. But it was a Monday night club held in the crypt of a church. And it came to my attention because of a John Martin album about 2013, I think it might have been, there was a John Martin box set released of all his albums. And in there was a previously unreleased live album. And I'm a John Martin fan. This live recording was completely unknown to me. And this live recording was called Live at the Hanging Lamp, Richmond. I'd never heard of the Hanging Lamp. So I started asking around and nobody else had ever heard of the Hanging Lamp either. And it took me a good six months or so before I was talking to uh, a Scottish folk musician who happened to mention that he used to play at the Hanging Lamp. So he told me a little bit about it. And he said, if you really want to know more, the person you need to talk to is. And it was this girl who used to be the coat check girl at the club. I met her. She told me more. She put me in touch with the guy who actually founded the club, who still lived locally. And I was able to get the full story then. John Martin, who I'm a big fan of, played the Hanging Lamp regularly. He used to play there every couple of months, starting in 1968 when the club opened. Now, the guy that ran the club had no idea that this recording was ever made. So when that album appeared, he knew nothing about it. 
But he was there that night because you can hear him on the album introducing John Martin. And at the the album, he, you know, informs everybody who's playing the next week. So he was there. He just never knew anybody recorded it. And this recording apparently sat on a shelf somewhere for 40 years before it was kind of discovered and cleaned up and pressed. And it's a terrific album because 1972, John Martin is partway between Bless This Weather, fantastic 71 album, and, you know, the pinnacle of his career, 1973, Solid Air. So the set he does draws from Bless the Weather and Solid Air, and it's a terrific set. The atmosphere crackles because that crypt, I've been down there, probably only holds about 100 people. He had the echoplex on the guitar and the noise bouncing off the walls. And it's because of this discovery that John Martin played regularly in this church crypt just down the street from me and recorded the album. That's what spurred me to investigate the whole music scene more and led to me writing the book. So had it not been for the John Martin album, I'd never have written the book.
suppose we've got a song that represents much of what we've been discussing today. It's been fantastic to talk to you, Andrew. And it's a previous uh, Strange Brew guest, Andy Roberts and Richmond. Yeah, um, I mean, I've long loved this track. And so when I came to write the book, I got in touch with Andy just to ask him about where did the song come from? And he wrote me the loveliest email telling me that he used to go to Eopai Island back in 1963. He didn't come from the area, but he'd moved down to London. So he said he'd been going to Eopai Island since 63 and he saw Sonny Boy Williamson, Jesse Fuller, Champion Jack Dupree and the like. But they were particularly keen on a band, he said, called The Tridents, Jeff Beck. And he used to hang around and he got to know Ray Cook, the Trident's drummer. And he he visited uh, Ray Cook's place and Jeff was living there too. So he got to meet Jeff. And then he said he eventually moved away. But a few years later, he revisited and he went to revisit old haunts in Richmond. And he found himself walking down a street called the Vineyard. Now, the Vineyard is where the church that had the hanging lamp is. And it turns out that um, Andy had a girlfriend who lived on the vineyard. Um, walking down the street a few years later brought the memories back. So when he wrote Richmond, the lyrics go, seems so long since I've seen you, must be five years, I guess. You don't look a day over 19, but then you never looked a day less, my love. You know, and he says they're the truest words he ever wrote. And now Andy lives down in Brighton, but he has a daughter who lives near Richmond or in East Twickenham, near Richmond Bridge. And occasionally he says, you know, he comes back to visit her and they take a walk along the riverside. And he said it brings back the memories of seeing the Rolling Stones carrying the gear over the footbridge to the island. Uh, and he ends the email saying Richmond is still beautiful. But when it was a teenage haunt for me, it was the centre of the universe. Well, what a way, and it'll only get better when we hear uh, Andy singing about Richmond. Final mention of Raving Upon Thames, an untold story of 60s London, of course, highly recommended. Andrew, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Um, Thank you so much for your time today to shed light on um, an aspect of music history that that should be better known. Oh, you're welcome. It's always great fun to talk about it. Thanks for inviting me on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've seen you Must be five years I guess You don't look a day Over 19 But then you never Look today less My love You never look Today less Remember the nights on the island Newcastle air on the grass
Jeff on stage with the tridents Talking about the past, my love Talking about the past, my love Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much 
plus any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.